Hi everybody and welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chest, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this crap, Rosé? Welcome to Brass Chats, everybody. Today we're speaking with Josh Landris of J. Landris Brass in Manhattan. He's a premier brass technician on the East Coast. He's worked with horns from players such as Wynton Marsalis, Wallace Roney, Chris Bodie, uh, John Faddis, the Canadian Brass, the list goes on and on. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start back at the beginning. Tell me about sure. the ankle biters. So ankle biters, I, I grew up, my first instrument was guitar. Uh, started taking lessons when I was about six years old and the music store that I had taken lessons at had a good program but not quite what I needed so my parents took me to another music store where the guy giving the lessons and running the music store did kid preteen rock bands mm -hmm. so he formed a band with some other students and we called ourselves the ankle biters and we did original music um, it was probably about 11 years old when the band started and we would play at middle schools and elementary schools and do like the drug-free thing and played concerts and it was a lot of fun playing you know classic rock and roll as a preteen. Cool so how did you get into brass instruments then? So when I was in sixth grade I was also playing drums at the time in elementary school and I get the middle school band and there's no French horn players and 19 drummers and the band director says well you know we're really looking for somebody to play French horn so I said okay I'll give it a try so I picked up a French horn, played a few notes. Come home from school that day and tell my parents, you know what, I'm not playing drums anymore, I'm gonna play French horn. My dad said, well that's very interesting because your great-grandfather used to play French horn in the Russian army. So it was kinda an interesting coincidence that my great-grandfather, whose 100th birthday I was born on, oh played French horn. And it kinda stuck. And that started it all from there. Well, let's get down to some nerdy stuff. Sure. The nuts and bolts of the what you do. The nuts and bolts. Um, you're a bit, of a, a bit of an historian, a brass historian. That's correct. Walk us through a brief history of instrument manufacturing, if you could, about the big landmarks, biggest mistakes made along the way. Well, there's a lot of different, if we look back historically, a lot of different changes and evolutionary changes to the trumpet and the coronet and valve structures and things like that. Some of the most important advances were probably going to be in the 1850s, mm -hmm. um, generally attributed to Gustav Besson, um, especially for the coronets and trumpets. Besson was the first person to use an actual mandrel to make bells. Mm -hmm. So nowadays when we talk manufacturing and trumpets and trombones, tubas, French horns, everybody uses a steel-formed mandrel to make their bells and their tubes and things like that. Mm -hmm. Besson was the first to come up with that actual steel form so he could always replicate the same type of bell. And that was sometimes in the 1850s. Um, other advances would be with the piston valve, or the actual name Perrionet valve. Um, you see early valves being invented as early as 1811, 1818, early rotor valves and box valves, which was basically a square valve in a square chamber that would move up and down. Mm -hmm. Later advances by Stozel, where you got the Stozel valve, which is found on cornopians. Then from there, that evolved into the Perrionet valve, which is the modern piston that we use oh today. Oh my gosh, okay. Uh, that's a lot of stuff. Perrionet valves, never even heard of that. That's the pistons that we use today on our <laughs> trumpets. 
Um, are there any instruments from the past that are actually superior to anything on the market today, and, and why? Well, it's, that's kind of a trick question. Um, I'm very much in the belief that an instrument is someone's personal choice. Mm -hmm. Just like with a pair of shoes or a pair of jeans, what is most comfortable for somebody is their own personal choice. However, um, I'm personally fond of early Besson instruments, um, particularly around the turn of the century to the 1930s. Uh, the modern trumpets that we look at today, if you were to look at a Besson from that time, they're virtually identical in design, bore size, spec specifications of the bell and of the tapers. Mm -hmm. um, different materials were used back then, a little bit better quality metals in some cases, um, where you have a pure alloy instead of recycled alloys. Um, but really those trumpets from the 20s and 30s were, in my opinion, some of the best made instruments out there. Better made than anything on the market today, you think? Well, I wouldn't say better an than anything. Thing. It's an opinion thing. Okay, got it. Yeah, sure. Uh, you've taken on some pretty big restoration projects mm -hmm. over the years. Are there any particular ones you want to talk about that you're especially proud of? Um, I have one coronet that I'm actually pretty proud of restoring, and I'll show it to you guys later. Um, it's engraved on the bell Paskin Koenig. Uh, Pask was a flute maker in London uh, who partnered with Koenig to do a brass instruments. And generally, uh, they weren't manufacturing them, but they were having other makers make them. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, I acquired a Pask and Koenig coronet that was the earliest serial number on the bell uh, of the known Pask and Koenig instruments. With further resource, uh, research, we determined that that coronet was actually Besson serial number 12. Uh, so it would be the 12th coronet oh that God. Besson made, and it's unique because of the valve configuration and the layout of the horn was actually a design that Adolf Sachs later patented um, and was cause for one of the reasons for Besson to leave France from a patent litigation with Adolf Sachs. Oh so this horn predates the patent. And it was a pretty important restoration to do. Oh, wow. Uh, well, let's uh, stop the tape for a second, and we'll go for a little bit of a walk sure. around the shop, and you can show some of your favorite instruments. And... be happy to show you some things. All right, let's do it. Okay, let's take a quick tour of the shop. What are some of your favorite instruments? So some of my favorite instruments are actually in this display up here. Um, this is kind of my personal collection of instruments and some things that I wouldn't really sell that I find pretty interesting. The horn that I was mentioning before the Besson serial number 12 is this coronet here, uh, the Paskin Koenig. Now this I completely restored, it's all original. Now one neat thing about this is you see these little things, nubs, sticking off to the side. These are actually the valve guides. Um, before modern techniques of manufacturing where you could have little notches on the inside, you'd just have these little pins that would go into the valve and would rest through the inside of the spring. So this would kind of go in there, imagine that there, and then that would be the valve guide for the horn. Oh, cool. And this horn dates to about 1848, around there. What did it look like when you started with the horn? Um, it actually looked not bad, but it was quite bent and smashed up, and uh -huh. it had been poorly repaired over the years. Uh, so this, I actually took every piece apart on this horn to put back. So this is one of my favorites that I have here. Um, Another horn that I think is really neat, that gets a lot of attention here in the shop, is this little guy. This is a King Mini Liberty Trumpet. Um, this one is from 1931, and it is 
exactly half size that of a modern trumpet. Uh, the King Company thought it would be neat to show off their technique and how great of a manufacturer they were by making little novelty items for the traveling salesmen and for dealers. And this was one of them. Now this is the 1926 World's Fair presentation horn from the Besson Company. Now this is the original gold plate, jade finger buttons, and if you can see, the engraving on here is really cool. It's like a 3D etched engraving. You have a little grasshopper and some leaves, and it goes up. <laughs> you got a butterfly and a dragonfly and a bee, but it's actually a 3D acid-etched bell. So they covered it in wax, uh -huh. engraved out the wax, put it in acid to etch away the metal, and then engraved on top of it. So oh you get that God. 3D effect. That's gorgeous. Um, now this is, when we talk about the design of modern trumpets, this horn is probably one of the best examples of what the modern trumpets that we play on today is copied from. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it, kind of, you know, benches do the forward-facing second valve slide. Uh -huh. Box early designs were based on Besson's. Uh, so this is really, I think, one of the coolest horns that I have. How here. does it play in comparison to, to modern horns? You know, it plays pretty darn well. It's yeah. actually kind of scary how well it plays for being almost a 90-year-old instrument. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it plays just as well as some of the modern horns that I have here, but unfortunately this horn is not for sale. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it's a fun one. I gotta, I gotta hear the story behind uh, Dizzy's horn over here. So, Dizzy's horn in here, it's one that Dizzy picked out from the Martin factory. Uh, it's not one that it was like one of his playing instruments that he generally played on. Mm -hmm. Those had sterling silver bells, uh -huh. um, but this one is from 1957, and Dizzy Gillespie gave this horn to Jerry Lewis on the Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin show. <laughs> um, now, one neat thing about it is it still has the original corks, springs, felts. Wow. Everything on this instrument are, origi are original to the horn. Uh, a recent acquisition to my collection is this mouthpiece here. Um, this is a Lavelle mouthpiece. Lavelle was a mouthpiece maker in Pittsburgh in the 40s and 50s who made a very small number of mouthpieces. Uh, a lot of the earlier jazz musicians uh, played on some of these pieces, and this ha actually happens to be one of Dizzy Gillespie's mouthpieces. Hmm. Uh, it does have his name engraved on it, and there are some pictures from Life magazine in 1948 of Dizzy Gillespie and you can see this mouthpiece in the pictures, and if you zoom in, you can see some of the engraving where it matches up. The shank wear matches up exactly. Uh, and I think that's a really neat piece of history to think that this is the mouthpiece that he recorded with Charlie Parker on the early bebop oh, stuff. Yeah. Um, a really good piece of history to go with some of my other mouthpieces that I have here, too. Oh, that's really so over here, this is kind of my little mouthpiece display case. Mm -hmm. So this is a neat one. This is a Giardinelli. But if you can read what the name says on there... Yeah, Louis Armstrong, yeah. So this is one of Louis Armstrong's mouthpieces. Who's that? Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of that guy. Yeah, he, he was a nobody. Um, so this was one of his Giardinelli's, and it's based on a, a Selmer. And if you can look on the inside, it has a pretty wide, flat rim, shallow yeah. cup, and then a secondary cup like the Parduba mouthpieces. Mm -hmm. um, this I got from the grandson of the editor of Time magazine... Um, who, when Time Magazine did an article on Louis Armstrong, Louis gave this to the editor as a gift, and then I then subsequently got it off his grandson. Oh, cool. Um, next to this, I have one of Miles Davis's. 
next to that, this is Henry Bussey. Henry Bussey, not a very common name anymore, but in the 1920s, he was the highest paid trumpet player. Uh, he was Paul Whiteman's first trumpet player. So in 1920, when Bing Crosby and, and Big Spiderbeck were in the band, they were making $150 a week. Henry Bussey was making $350 a week. Oh, my God. Uh, then we have here one of Ernie Royals. Uh, this is a neat one. This is a Bach. Now, for all the Bach fans out there, we all know the common numbering systems, but this one is 110 and three quarters. Well, that must be tiny. Now, this mouthpiece was Edward Llewellyn's um, from the Chicago Symphony. Uh -huh. uh, Llewellyn later played on Schilke mouthpieces, and the Schilke Model 9 was the design that was actually made for Llewellyn. Um, also in here we have one of Bernie Glows. This is a Bach Aida mouthpiece for the Aida trumpets that the Metropolitan Opera used. Yeah. And that's a pretty neat engraving. Aida large. <laughs> um, next to that, this is one of Vacchiano's Mount Vernon ones. Um, right here. In the front, this is a pretty neat mouthpiece. Uh, this is, as far as I can tell, the oldest known Bach mouthpiece. Really? You can see there it has a, a pretty crude Bach stamp. But on the other side it says Frank Holton, Chicago. Now, Bach, before he started making mouthpieces and making instruments, was a very fine cornetist and trumpet player himself. Mm -hmm. um, and Bach was actually a Holton and Dorsey. So some of his earlier mouthpieces, he was using Holton blanks, to then machine down and make his mouthpieces and stape his name. And what do you estimate on a manufacturer date for that? I'm going to say around 1918 for this one, oh, um, because God. it is a Sh Holton Chicago, and that was before the, the fire at the Holton Chicago factory in 1919. Mm -hmm. um, some other neat ones. These are Charlie Allen mouthpieces here, and you can see they have a pretty cool design on the outside. Uh, Charlie Allen was... As far as I know, the only African-American mouthpiece maker in American history. He was based in Chicago um, and made a lot of mouthpieces for jazz trumpet players of the time also. Um, most famous would be Cat Anderson played on a Charlie sure. Allen mouthpiece, Fats Navarro, uh, Doc Cheatham. Uh, so those are two there. Those are pretty neat. This is an early Colicchio mouthpiece from the 20s um, when Dominic Colicchio was making mouthpieces. Um, along with his early trumpets. And then mm -hmm. here, this is an early Besson uh, mouthpiece from around the turn of the century. Those are some fun mouthpieces that oh, I have here. Wow. That, you know, people can come person. in and play and try, and cool. it's always fun to, you know, give somebody like the Louis Armstrong mouthpiece and say, here, you know, try this in this trumpet. Don't look at what it is. And they play it, and they're like, oh, this is really not a good mouthpiece. Yeah, it's, it's I'm very played, uncomfortable. I played copies of some of these mouthpieces, like Diz's mm -hmm. and such. Somebody's making copies of them now. Yeah. And gosh, I just can't play them. Yeah, they're really difficult to play. Like, yeah. the Dizzy mouthpiece units, a really small rim, oh, super shallow cup, and a 17 throat. So a really, really big throat. Uh -huh. And you put it up to your face, and it's like, man, this is really uncomfortable. How do you do <laughs> yeah, it? Right, right. <laughs> You make your own custom instruments from scratch. I do. Now, where do you draw the inspiration? Uh, which design characteristics do you draw the inspiration from? Well, I'm, I'm inspired from two big designs. Uh, one would be the early Bessons, once again, yeah. as they are some of my favorite instruments. And the second would be from the Martin Committee. Um, from those two designs, you have a lot of variety of sound and color um, from the instruments. You can see people such as like Chris Bodie, who people think has a really dark, warm, buttery sound, who plays on a Martin Committee. And people like Dizzy Gillespie, who is very bright, 
played on a Martin committee. As the same with the Bessons, being that was the inspiration for Bach and Benj and other makers, uh, I'm following into that inspiration also. Now, do you see yourself ever making these horns on a larger scale? Ideally, I think that would be really neat, but what I do with my instruments that I feel is pretty unique is I'm making an instrument for a particular player based on what they need an instrument to do. So for example, someone's owned multiple horns, been through lots of different mouthpieces, still isn't happy with their idea of sound or the sound that they're producing or the feel, they've tweaked, they've adjusted, they've tried different things, then I am trying to then custom tailor my, that specific instrument for them. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the signature design characteristics of your trumpets that really separate it from most popular modern instruments today? Well, one thing I'm doing is I'm making everything from sheet brass. Um, a couple manufacturers do used, uh, use sheet brass for lead pipes and tubing and things like that, but it's not as popular as it once was because of the availability of regular drawn tubing. With that tubing, I'm hand burnishing everything, also doing it the old-fashioned way by hand as opposed to using hydraulic drawing machines to get the tubing. There's pros and cons to that. Uh, it is a little bit harder for me to achieve overall consistency all the time in doing everything by hand, but I find with that inconsistency, I can alter the way an instrument plays a little bit more so than on a larger factory level. Sure. Can you point to something you do that most people don't even know they wanted, but makes a huge impact on the, uh, the instrument? Wow. That's a... That's when they a, bring a horn in. Well, a lot of times, you know, with repair these days, there's a lot of different techniques that a lot of very good technicians use, things such as valve alignments or uh, adjustments to the venturi of the lead pipe yeah. or gap adjustments. Um, a lot of technicians who do that type of work have very good results. But as a player and a musician, generally people don't know what will do what to the instrument. Sure. So for example, you know, a lot of people will come in and think, well, my horn is out of tune, I need a valve alignment. Right. Valve alignment doesn't necessarily fix intonation problems. It does help with the evenness of blow. But if there's an intonation problem, there's another part of the instrument that we need to address. Uh, sometimes with that, I'll adjust spots within the lead pipe. Because of the taper of the lead pipe, there are certain nodal points and frequencies that respond at certain points. So by adjusting points inside the lead pipe, we can then adjust intonation on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, that was my next question is, what is it that everybody seems that they, they think that they want uh, that they probably don't need? It's kind of a foul. Is there anything like that? You, you pointed to the, the PVA. Yeah, the a valve alignment is a, is a good thing. Um, I don't think everyone necessarily needs it or likes it. Uh, I've had some musicians come in where they've had valve alignments done on their horn by very qualified technicians and don't like the way it plays. Mm -hmm. And we'll go back to more of like a stock felt uh, and they like the feel of the valves more and they yeah. like the way it plays. It's not necessarily that the valve alignment is a bad thing. It's, you know, any adjustment that you make to an instrument is gonna change the way it plays. And sometimes a change from familiarity can throw some things off, especially if you've been playing the same type of instrument with felts or the same right. horn for 20, 25 years, that's what's familiar. And yeah. sometimes subtle changes like that don't necessarily work. Sure. What's the next big thing in brass instruments, do you think? The next big revolution? Wow. Um, 
There's a couple things that I'm working on that I can't really talk about oh, at this on, time. Oh, come on, you can tell us. It's just us. It's well, just un us. unfortunately, I am applying for uh, a patent on one thing that I think will be Very the next. Very cool. Uh, can, can you hint? Uh, it's going to have to do with the valve mechanisms Ooh. and uh, how you push down valves. Oh. Uh, I've got a couple ideas that You're I'm working do it on. Sideways? No, that's already been that's already <laughs> been done actually. <laughs> Um, but this is this is going to be something that I think would be pretty revolutionary that I'm coming up with. Oh, very cool! But it's so still a, it's still about a year away from uh, oh, the final result. Oh no! But maybe off camera I'll show you some things. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, let's go on to the monster round. Yeah, this is where we ask sort of rapid fire questions, sure. and you give the first thing that comes to your mind, short answers ideally. And, uh, yeah, subject matter can range wildly. Cool. Are you ready for the monster round? I'm ready for the monster round. Okay. Who makes the best drinks in New York? Best drinks. There's a place called Fish Tag on 77th between Columbus and Amsterdam. They have a jalapeno cocktail that I really like. <laughs> okay. Name the instrument that was the hardest for you to see leave the shop. Uh, I had a gold-plated Martin years ago from 1938 that was completely engraved that I eventually sold to Eddie Henderson, and I'm sad every day that that horn <laughs> is gone, and it's been years. This is a question I want to know for a long time. Mm -hmm. Have you ever told somebody you altered their instrument but really didn't, just to see if they would notice? I have once. There's an old <laughs> trick um, that repairmen will use sometimes. People will come in and they'll complain about something, and you take their horn into the back where they can't see you. Grab a hammer and you bang, 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 So you bang. have. You have done it. And you give it back and you say, okay, I made some changes. And then the person plays it. I, I've done that once or twice. <laughs> but then eventually I fessed up and said, you know, really, I haven't. I didn't do anything right, to right. your horn. It's okay. psychological. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate the honesty. What's the best concert band in the world right now? The U.S. Coast Guard Band or one of the other ones? The United States Coast Guard Band is the greatest band in the history of man, and will remain so until the end of time. If you could be any athlete in the world, who would it be? I don't know. I think it would be Bo Jackson. Remember Bo Jackson from back sure. in the day? Yeah. Did baseball, did basketball, did football. He I think that awesome. would be pretty cool. Yeah, Bo does everything. Bo does everything. Bo does brass repair. That's right. Uh, name an instrument you'd love to see come into your shop that you've never worked on before. Um, there's a few. I would love to see a Buker trumpet. Buker was a maker... Um, in the 50s, a repairman oh. in Newark and a maker made mouthpieces also. Oh, okay. Uh, I know two of those horns to exist. I would love to work on one. Worst injury you've had on the job? Uh, I did break both of my wrists at the same time a number of years ago, taking dents out of a tuba. Oh, my God. Uh, I was shaking a dent ball through, shaking it like this. My hands got stuck in the tuba and wrists went snap. Uh, and guy across the room heard the pop and me being a kind of a tough guy, didn't really think I did anything wrong and continued to work on the tuba. Next day, woke up, fingers were the size of sausages, and had two broken wrists. Oh, God. If you could ask anybody out on a date publicly, right here and now, who would it be? Natalie Portman. <laughs> the most prized tool in the shop? Uh, most prized tool is one of my dent mandrels that I have modified. And it's one of my favorites, yeah. Now, this is a question I wanted to ask you for a long time. This is one of my favorites. If I put you in the middle of the woods right now with nothing but food, water, and clothing... How long would it take you to manufacture a working trumpet with valves? Boy, that would take a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I could cook dinner, though. Diz or Miles? Diz. JJ or Rosalino? JJ. Now you're a French horn player. Dennis Brain or Barry Tuckwell? Dennis Brain. Why should people come to your shop? 
Uh, I like to give a unique experience, one-on-one, -on -one, personal, fun, and honest opinions, as well as quality work. Josh Landris, thanks so much for your time. Thank you really very much. talking to you today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. If you'd like to subscribe to our channel, click here or here.